Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Eepin, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my very cherished co-host, Sunday Mint. Hello there. And my nearly perfect producer, Eric Ostrich. Howdy. This season's theme is Beam Magic, Beam Magic, and we are joined by a special guest, a very special person, Eric Person. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for having me. Eric, this is the most, we, we put the most important question right at the top. Did you ever find out if VirtualBox was stealing passwords? <laughs> no, never found out, but you do catch it every now and then when you find these Mac apps that are prompting you for your uh, your admin password and you can just tell the box is just a little bit off and so you know something's going on there. I just ran into this with another piece of software called Tunnelblick, a VPN, and so it uh, makes you a little nervous when you see that. But do you do it anyway? I do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we found that and then I, I was looking at it and I said, wait, Eric, isn't this the thing you just told me to install? <laughs> Oh, the timing of it was great. Yeah, we, Eric and I were talking about how all of our passwords are the same, and it's all—it's always monkey, just M O N K E Y, and that's how the word monkey became like a top ten password. It was just developers all using the same password. Anyway, it's not true. It was a joke. Didn't go. Eric, how did you get into programming? We like to start right at the top and just learn a little bit about you. So, what was your background in programming? Like? Yeah, actually, my uh, mom was a computer scientist. And so I kind of had a little natural progression there just learning from her. Um, and then it just sounded like a pretty cool thing to get into. So I think at some point, middle school did like a lot of people started picking up basic just a bit because you wanted to program games. And then uh, throughout high school and into college, yeah, went for computer science, just loved it, thought I was going to stick around and uh, actually go for a master's degree in it and just keep studying and studying. And then once I got a taste for the industry, I was hooked and really just wanted to go be a, a software developer. Do you have any funny stories about your mom being a computer scientist growing up? She taught at the university. At, I ended up attending. We never overlapped there, but that was always kind of interesting. We kind of had a lineage. My brother went to the same university, so we had this nice long legacy of uh, persons there. Oh my gosh, we're going to have so many person puns today. So I can just imagine like mom at the dinner table, like making Lambda calculus jokes and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. I'm getting uh, reprimanded for the person puns. Do, do you remember what your first programming job was? I do. Yeah. I grew up in Nebraska and there was a company there called Design Data. I know kind of a generic name, uh, but the software they made was pretty cool. It was called SDS2. It was a kind of architectural software. So building the, the structure of buildings, the, the actual beams and everything, the concrete that went into it. Um, so that was really pretty cool software. I did not know what I was doing whatsoever. So I didn't contribute all that much, but it was a, a pretty cool job to start with. You were working on the beams before it was cool? Yeah. Yeah. Way before it was cool. <laughs> Well, Sunday, there's a terrific segue for you. Absolutely. So why don't we talk about the beam? Can you tell us who Corvus is and how you all use Elixir and, you know, the beam? Yeah, definitely. So Corvus is the company I work for. It's Corvus Insurance. We are a commercial insurance company and we focus on cyber insurance. And what we use the beam and Elixir for is to build our software application um, that connects our brokers, um, our underwriters, so our own employees uh, with our policyholders. It's basically just how uh, everyone gets their job done within the company. 
So is everything that you're doing running on the Beam? Do you have other technologies that you're using or are you sort of, can you just describe the architecture? Yeah, we are pretty all in on the Beam. So that is what powers the the vast majority of our software. We do have a, a data science component and our data scientists like most love Python. And so they use a lot of Python and they particularly use that in Amazon Lambda. But the rest of us all run Beam and we run it containers. Uh, and then we just kind of communicate with them over uh, queues in the uh, Amazon environment. Well, that kind of answers the architecture question a little bit, but do, do you want to maybe elaborate just if there's kind of more context that you can give? I think a lot of people are probably, I don't know, surprised, infuriated. I feel like there's reactions to, to, to Lambda every time it comes up. So maybe just talk a little bit more about, about the broad architecture there and if there's any other quirks that might uh, trigger people. <laughs> yeah, so we, I mean... Containers have gotten pretty popular these days, so that's nothing too special. We are looking forward to trying to move on to something like Amazon Fargate, where it gets much more of the serverless, so we don't have to uh, manage the underlying servers or anything like that. Right now, we kind of host those ourselves. And so we're looking forward to that. Lambdas are really great and really painful at the same time. They're, they're very easy to spin up. They're easy to communicate with. But you kind of feel like once you want to start doing more advanced things like WebSockets, for instance, that's not really uh, what Lambdas are really meant for. But thankfully, we've got the Beam over here. We've got a really great option for that. So Lambdas, we kind of treat them more as like background processor, queue processor type things where they're easy, launch it, let it run, and then you don't need it for a while afterwards. So yeah, it ends up working out really well, especially for the data scientists, because Lambdas were kind of born with Python, and that's what they use. So it's definitely been really fantastic for them to get going. Uh, what's your role at Corvus? I'm the VP of engineering at Corvus. How did you get into that part of the company? Or I mean, that's a managerial position, I imagine. You've got the reports and everything. Yeah, I started as the first engineer at Corvus, and so I brought Elixir with me. We also use Elm on the front end, so I brought both of those languages with me. There wasn't a line of code or anything written when I started, and so those were definitely the languages I thought were really fantastic and would allow us to build some really great software. So we brought those in and, yeah, have been using them ever since, and I know the, the team really loves it. I love that it makes hiring easier because there's a lot of people who really want to work in Elixir and work on Beam technologies. And so being able to advertise that we have that is really great. I'm actually curious, since you're kind of in this position of having, you know, hired some folks in Elixir and whatnot, have you had this experience of Elixir devs coming, kind of coming on and immediately understanding what the Beam was all about and what it was? Or was it more like Elixir developers knew that their language had something to do with the beam, but they didn't necessarily know what that meant or like how that worked. I think most people definitely know it and understand it really well. And especially the whole kind of OTP packages. I think everyone's really excited to work in those and they're just looking for any opportunity to get in there and start building gen servers and doing what they can. Yeah. So it's definitely a lot of fun. We found a lot of you know great uses for those. It's, it's exciting. And yeah, I know the team loves it. So they know what OTP is. They know gen servers. They've maybe built one before. So it sounds like they've already, they're a pretty experienced kind of group of people. Do they know Elixir already before they came in to Corvus? Not every engineer does, but definitely those who do are excited about it and definitely know those things. They're the ones reading books about it and just, yeah, aching to have a job where they get to work on it. Wow, you're doing a really good job selling Corvus right right now. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of applications, which hopefully hopefully that's something uh, that you desire. I'm curious, how did you discover Elixir? 
Yeah. So I really wanted to learn functional programming. I had kind of grown up on .NET and C Sharp. I've done a little bit of Ruby and of course JavaScript, but I really wanted to get into functional and I kept reading about Clojure. And so I kept trying to use Clojure and I would read books and I would try and I kept kind of falling down because Clojure and I think by design never really put all of the packages together. So if you want to build a web application using Clojure, it's really kind of up to you, even as this new Clojure developer to identify which packages you need to combine them to actually get a full web framework up and running. And I just kept failing because I didn't know enough to be able to do that. So I started reading about some others. I discovered Elixir and then especially Phoenix. And there it was, batteries included. Here's how you get a, a website, web application up and running. And it just took off from there. It was so much easier. It really gave me the option to do what I wanted to do, which was just learn functional programming. So it took away all of the, the pain out of that. And I got to really focus on, okay, how does this language work and what's fascinating about it? So... Once I got into it, then definitely just bought every book I could, read it, loved it, all the OTP stuff, so fascinating. So once I did that, I was hooked. I guess I'm curious because you were talking about how you've got you've done a really good job of your team understanding the underlying OTP beam mechanics. I'm curious, when you were learning, what were some of the harder concepts to grasp? I, I think we all moved through the sort of hierarchy of Elixir, using OTP in the context of Elixir, and then trying to understand like what the beam actually is at the bottom level. Tell me if I got that right and what the sticking points are along the way. Yeah, so I think my progression, so once you kind of get into the gen servers, I think what took me a while to understand is that is how you store and mutate state within Elixir and within the beam. Um, that really hadn't clicked for a while until I finally, I think it was Sasha Yurik's book that actually kind of really brought that to light for me of exactly how that was going to work. Could you say that again? What What is how you store and mutate state? Uh, processes uh, within OTP. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So just grasping every, like, they don't say everything's a process. I'm thinking of Ruby and say everything's an object, but there's a, everything's a process in Elixir, right? So that was like the hardest thing for you to grok. And like, what was the, what was the sort of tipping point for you to be able to understand what you were using there and, and what the dynamic was? just reading about all the examples of how that's used. So kind of examples, if you were going to build your own ETS framework, so how do you store that state? Well, you do that by creating a new process and that holds that piece of data for you. And then here's how you access it by, you know, sending a message to that process. So after seeing that enough, it finally clicked like, okay, that is how you hold state like that. When you want to change it, you send it a message and it finally started to click. Because when I think of process originally, it was very much in kind of the operating system, like this is just a progression of something happening. Um, so once yeah. I got to that. And I do want to correct something. Everything is not a process in Elixir, but I'm curious because actually this is, I think, a problem that a lot of people get into where they get a little overzealous when, they're, when they first realize how easy it is to spin up a new process. Do you want to talk about how you manage that temptation? <laughs> yeah, I know that is a very common temptation. Task.start is very easy to call and uh, just send something off to the background. Yeah, when building an, an application, um, while that's nice to do, there are a lot of reasons why that kind of can cause you pain. And some of those are just uh, what happens when the thing in that task fails. So if you're using a framework like Phoenix, when something fails, you get notified, right? The crash report comes out, it gets logged. You get to track that. When you start using task.start, those things just become unattached and they go off 
and you have no idea what's happening. So you have to start adding in a lot of your own handling of that. So you have to make sure you log when things go wrong. Um, you lose even something as simple as the request ID with Phoenix. So when a new request, like an HTTP request comes in, it attaches that request ID to it. So if you do task.start, you lose that. So even if you are logging, it makes it hard to line up those logs. So yeah, task.start is great, but it's definitely something that you need to be a little more careful with. And if you need that extra speed and you really, truly need it, go for it. But in a lot of cases... You're just not going to need that. And it's just going to introduce more issues that are going to uh, make things more complex for you. So is this a case you think to kind of default to synchronous synchronous ex execution and then really only abstract things out into their own processes when they become problematic? Yeah, definitely. You need some reason to do it. Either it's it's too slow or it's causing some kind of bottleneck or you know, once you have a problem, then you can start using these to solve those problems. Mm hmm. Now, when I asked about the biggest hurdles to understanding sort of the OTP world, you said processes. I'm, I'm curious, when you get into the distinction between the beam and what's the language is running on the beam, and this will kind of lead us to a conversation on languages too, I think. Could you talk about that learning curve and if there are any sort of specific hurdles there that you found, like once you understood it, everything kind of clicked into place? Yeah, I know for me, after learning Elixir, I felt like I had a good idea, but I kind of wanted to do what you're talking about there and make sure I really understood it. So I started reading a lot more about Erlang and just saw what the real differences were and that they really are just two different languages, but they are on this top of the same thing, right? On top of OTP, on top of the beam. And so just kind of getting to see that translation between here's how a gen server works in Elixir and here's how one works in Erlang definitely really helped to understand that these OTP things are the fundamental building blocks of the beam and the language on top of it, whatever you're using, whether it's, you know, Gleam now or Elixir or Erlang, like just allow you access to those. And then that's where you're actually building your application. Do you have a favorite part of the beam that you utilize often? That's a good question. What I really love is just how easy it is to build kind of features and tools that in other languages and other environments, you might be out buying something. So I think about uh, something like background job processing now. I know there's, I think Rescue is the common one in Ruby, and I know there's even Oban now in Elixir, but building that yourself with OTP is pretty simple and straightforward. You have these processes that can be long running, you can start them, they can read queue messages, they can save that state, um, whatever you need to do. So it turns out it's actually pretty simple to, to run that. And then the supervision tree makes it really easy to start that when your application boots up. And so I really love just how simple those are to get started. And so you don't need to run out and find the right package and twiddle and tweak with that. Um, you can just set up a couple processes, a couple gen servers, and you're good to go. I actually, we thought it would be fun to ask what you wished Elixir or the Beam could do, but, you know, kind of on the tail end of what your favorite part are or what your favorite parts are. Do you have something that you don't like about the Beam or Elixir that you wish would be a little different? It's like a, a variation on that question. Yeah. And I don't want to be mean to Elixir here or anything, no, but I'm definitely, a, <laughs> I'm definitely a type guy. I like having types. I think they they empower you to do refactoring so much more easily. I think they allow you to, there's this phrase that I think is kind of getting more common, make impossible state impossible or make impossible state unrepresentable. When you have really strong types, you can empower that yourself and let the compiler check that you are 
making impossible state unrepresentable. So I really like that a lot. If Elixir could add that, it has specs and dialyzer, and those are really nice, but they don't quite enforce the same level as a, a kind of true compiler. So we use Elm at Corvus and we get a lot of benefits from that. I don't use Haskell, so I can only understand what other people have said, but I hear that Haskell is very similar in that it really gives you that strict typing that I know I like a lot. We've had so many strong opinions on this, and now I'm wondering who we need on to both pair. Sides. Yeah, who do we want to pair him with for the grand debate? <laughs> One other thing I wanted to kind of mention, you brought it up when you were talking about closure and how the packages aren't really there to spin up a web app like from scratch. And we actually just had on, this is a tough act to follow, we just had on Robert Verding, and we asked him what the difference was between the Elixir and the Erlang communities, and, the, and he said the exact same thing, which is that Erlang community isn't built in such a way where you just get all of the packages in one place that you need to like rapidly spin up a web app. And I kind of, I hear this, I've, I've heard this about multiple communities and I don't really understand why you wouldn't do that. Maybe you yeah. have some insight there. I know it's an off topic question, but. No, I wish I did. And yeah, that is what kind of drove me away from closure. I really wanted to learn Lisp especially. And so it, I was so disappointed that I, couldn't do that because of that. I think it's by design and I'm certainly not one to, to say why that is the case or what the, the thoughts are. I know those closure guys, Rich Hickey and Stuart Holloway, and like they do talks all the time and you can go you know, watch and read and listen to, to why they make those types of decisions. It's not the, the way I like it or the way I would have done it, but they're really smart guys. They know what they're doing. And so they've got their reasons for sure. So if you're a fan of Lisp, we actually do have good news. You can do Lisp-flavored Erlang. So I have seen that. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, I just think Lisp is so cool because of just how simple it is that, you know, people talk about how it's already the abstract syntax tree, which is, I think, neat. Um, and it just really kind of, yeah, it's just so much fun to just kind of see your your code be the data, just be exactly in the shape that it already needs to be. I think it's fascinating. I wonder if maybe since we, we kind of mentioned Robert Verding just a second ago, he wrote a blog post a little while ago, the Erlang rationale. And there was a, a quote in there that uh, we, we found pretty interesting, maybe a little controversial based on, you know, what he, he said in the last episode, but also what you're saying now, he said something along the lines of, I have nothing against type checkers like dialyzer which does other useful checks as well, but I still see no need to include types in the language. So it's coming from a founder. Curious, you know, what are your thoughts as somebody who likes types? I know there are those people out there and I don't think they're wrong by any means, but I know that personally, I really appreciate them. I know the area where I find the most useful is definitely in refactoring. And when people uh, start learning Elm, right, which is one of these extremely statically typed languages, that's always their first reaction is, wow, I just refactored 300 lines of code and it compiled and it ran perfectly. I mean, that's just the sensation you get after you do this. And it's, it's really nice. It's really rewarding to feel like you are very confident that you did it properly. Of course, tests and those kinds of things help with this, but just treating the compiler as a, a really fast test runner is also really useful. Do you think it might be like a personality type thing? Where I mean, I'm being dead serious. Where I, I think that people who prefer dynamic types are like chaotic and 
just want to be able to do whatever they want to be able to do. I mean, it's like Paul Graham, hacker, I, which I, this book I mentioned all the time, Hackers and Painters. You just want to be able to slap paint on the canvas versus a type, a static type person is more of an engineering kind of mindset. Yeah, there's got to be something like that. I'm sure there's a one question you can ask everybody and you can figure out pretty easily what they like or not. But yeah, it does. it's definitely just some kind of mindset. For me, it was getting to experience those types, like really sold me on it. I think a lot of people use the Javas and the C-sharps where it does feel like the types just kind of get in your way and you don't really feel the value. But then once you learn this make impossible state impossible idea, I think you can really start to set up the types and model your data in a way that really helps. And that's where the type checker comes in handy. Justice, I think you're onto something modeling a personality test after if you like types or you don't like types or what language are you into or or VS Code or Vim, you know? Who needs the Myers Briggs when you have the real questions in life? I mean, there definitely does seem to be like a Haskell person, you know? <laughs> like there's a Rust person, there's a Haskell person. They're just like adjacent to one another, but they're on the other side of the world from the guy who's like a devout Ruby or um or even an elixir guy you know anyway that's that's just me spitballing here we're going to change gears here but we've got one, i've got one more kind of set of questions i want to go into uh, on the beam because you wrote this amazing blog post two years ago where you just go through parsing eerie to uh, erlang abstract forms and i just i was hoping that you could kind of give us the tldr on the blog post and also just kind of just take us through some of the big concepts here. I'll let, I'll just let you go from there. Yeah. So I mentioned one of the reasons I wanted to get into Clojure is I really wanted to learn a Lisp. And when I looked at Lisp flavored Erlang, nothing about it stood out as interesting enough for me uh, to, to really want to kind of dive deep into. It doesn't seem like it has that big of a community. I'm sure there are uh, quite a few people out there using it. So I just decided, you know what, why don't I try to build my own Lisp on the beam? and if I'm building it myself, then that means because I like types, I'm going to figure out some way to add some types in here. I think I had just read about Gleam not too long before this and saw, okay, somebody else is thinking about types and it's definitely possible to, to make this work. So I wanted to try it myself. So yeah, so I wrote a, a series of these articles. I definitely don't have a language that anyone can use or would want to use, but it was just a lot of fun to, to learn about what it takes to build a programming language. And because Lisp tends to be one of the simpler possible languages you can make, it seemed like a really great place to start. If you look at the parser for Elixir, it is significantly more complicated than what you're going to find for a Lisp. So uh, I just wanted to kind of document what I had found. And so... Hopefully, maybe somebody else finds it and it's useful to them, but then also just as a good reference documentation, knowing that this would take me years to try to build so I can come back to this and uh, refresh my memory whenever need be. And so I want to dive into this just a little bit because I think some of the concepts here are, are fascinating. So first of all, you've got this language. It parses down into this abstract form. Can you kind of just tell us what an abstract form is from a high level so that people will know what the word means? Yeah, so what you end up getting it down into are Erlang terms or Elixir terms. So you, you're talking tuples and symbols and strings. So you're converting the actual syntax of the language into these terms. And then the actual Beam and the kind of Erlang ecosystem can 
take that at many different kind of levels. So there's also something called, I think it's core Erlang, which has its own abstract form and also kind of a textual form. So depending on where you want to compile down to, the Erlang and Beam world can take over from there. So I chose the abstract form, the Erlang abstract form. I believe that's also what Elixir uses, but there are just multiple levels in there in which you can get your code to run. So this and, one- And both of these are interpreted by the Beam. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this one just made the most sense to me. It's very easy to just read yourself. Um, you can see the the function names in there and you can see where the parameters go and it's pretty simple. It almost looks like a Lisp itself in there. And so, yeah, translating code into that, I thought was pretty straightforward and, and not too bad. What was the hardest part of this project for you? Getting the right tools to to start with. So parsing the actual code. So um, I'm using the Erlang tools, the scanner and the Lexer, and using those to actually break up the code into the right pieces so that it can be translated was definitely the the trickiest part. Those aren't incredibly well documented. Um, so I was uh, actually looking at list flavored Erlang um, and looking at their parser and what they had built um, and trying to, to glean what I could from there. And so that was definitely the hardest part. Once you get it into once it's been parsed, now you're just kind of using code to manipulate it. So I was writing in Elixir to, to build the compiler. So um, just once I had it parsed, it was pretty straightforward and felt very natural there. But getting to that point was the most difficult. I just want to point out, I'm definitely right about us being bad at naming things because we all struggle every single day with a thing called YAML. <laughs> like what like why do we do this to ourselves i don't all right well okay so now that i've insulted literally everybody in the industry let's amazing uh, let's see well let's i mean like on that on that point it, it seems like the the naming of things is hard and maybe you know a little bit magical so why don't we move into the magic part of our episode we've heard a lot of opinions about you know, programming magic or, oh, this just worked like magic. And then some people like that, some people don't. And so we wanted to talk about beam magic and maybe what your thoughts are about how much magic is the right amount. Um, have you, you know, kind of seen that with the things you've worked with? Just any thoughts, opinions? Yeah, I love the level of magic that's in Elixir. And I think that level is pretty darn small. I really like that when you open up a somebody else's project, whether it's a package or an ap application, and you know that it's uh, an Elixir mix project, you know, okay, I'm going to open application.ex and that is going to tell me everything that's launched from here. And then I can open up those modules and I can see exactly what happens there. So some of this is definitely just age and uh, experiencing more things. And so that clicks really well with me. When I think about the the Ruby on Rails projects that I've done, I couldn't tell you how those start and how they start triggering and invoking the different controllers and all of that was very magical. And for the most part, it doesn't impact you that much. But every now and then you run into an issue and you need to dig into the the internals and really get in there and it can be really hard to trace. And so with Elixir and with mixed projects, that's so straightforward and so simple that I, I really enjoy that, that it's it's not even hiding anything and it's it's not magical. You can just see, here's the top, here's how it executes, and here's where I need to get to. Are you somebody who uses the generators? I'm just curious. Yeah, definitely. And those, you know, put it all in the right place, but at least it 
tends to, you have to add just that little bit of plumbing to to make sure it works and that's just enough to know how it gets there. I feel like the the most magical thing in Phoenix is probably the router itself. It's really great though that the code is readable and you can look, you know, there's always the the use statement at the top or something that brings in all the macros and you can trace that back to where it is um, and see what kind of code is getting included in there. And so it's still not that magical. I think it's really easy to trace. And so maybe that's what the negative magic is, is when you just can't figure out where it's coming from or how it's happening. So I feel like you really don't get that in Elixir. I feel like there's this weird tendency to disregard things that we don't understand as magic and 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 they, we say it in a derogatory way and yet there is some level of abstraction beyond the understanding of all of us right like there's nobody that has like the full stack in their head right so what why is this why do we demean this thing that we use so readily and have built entire careers on top of is it really because it's useful to have full understanding or is it more because we are afraid of not understanding? That's a good question. Yeah, I think that's definitely some of it is not knowing. And I know for me, it's when you have that one problem, that really deep problem, and you just have no idea where to go and you just kind of feel helpless and you feel lost. And then that's where you can definitely start feeling all oh, this magic. It's really killing me right now. I wish I actually could just see how this happened. I wish it was just a function call here, or whatever it might be. Yeah, I know that's definitely where I felt it. Uh, let me ask you this. I feel like when that happens to me, it's not it's almost never at the language level. Like if there's a bug in a Ruby library or something that I'm using, I feel pretty good about jumping into that library and figuring out what's going wrong. It's when it says something like CLang header link air or something like that, where I'm like, ah, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that the right way of looking at it? Is that the, your experience too? Yeah, I think so. I, in Ruby in particular, right? Method missing, that was just the catch-all for everything. And that, that made life kind of miserable if you needed to dig in. Some people don't seem to mind it. And that's great. I was not one of those people. Yeah. So I think that really hits it. Yeah. So at that point, it's not even magic. That's just like a lack of under or a lack of information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, when it works, it is magic and it's really fantastic. And and I love Ruby on Rails. I've, it was my first love in web applications and it was amazing and the magic was great. So I don't want to say magic is bad by any means, uh, but I really think something like Elixir strikes this really great balance where you get to feel that magic, but you still have the, you can still dig into it when you need to. Do you want to tell us about some of the magical parts of Elm? Yeah, definitely. So Elm, I think also doesn't have a lot of magic. It does have a framework. So when we talk about Elm, we talk about both the language itself and the kind of application architecture and the application framework. So Elm is kind of an overloaded term, just like Erlang might be. And once you're, that can cover the Beam and OTP and all sorts of stuff. So the Elm architecture is, I'm going to say it, the best way to write front end user interfaces ever. Unless you, if you need any sort of uh, dynamic content, if you need to make HTTP, you know, Ajax type requests, um, using Elm is just awesome. So the the kind of the magic that you get out of that is that unidirectional data flow. So you've got your state of the entire application is contained in one data structure. And then the view 
of the application is rendered as a function based off of that data. And then when you need to change things, you kind of fire messages that change that data, then the view re-renders. And so you just have this really nice data flow so that you can kind of debug it really easily. You know exactly how everything is going to work. You don't have to worry about side effects. So if I click a button here, that that might accidentally trigger something over there. Um, it's just all incredibly straightforward, easy to debug. The, the typing system, I think, really helps you out here. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Elm. And you're using it at Corvus, so you've kind of seen how it scales in terms of as your application grows more complex, you have more developers working on it. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, that was definitely something I was concerned about to start with, but it has not become an issue just because, one, most people are working on different pages. And so the way you can just architect the, the files, your Elm modules, is to, to break them up by page. So even if you have 10 teams, they might all be working on different pages. And so they're going to be far enough away from each other that you're not dealing with Git conflicts and you're not dealing with uh, trying to implement the same things. So um, you've got pretty good separation uh, just from that. And then I could follow up by asking you a very the same question about Elixir. I, this is actually something that's come up in several of the Slack groups that I'm in. People who are more used to building Greenfield Elixir apps are asking, what are some of the challenges with a growing Elixir application? And there's a couple canonical answers everyone gives. You can go through those if you want, but please. Yeah, let's see if this is the same one. Context, Phoenix Context. Oh, just explode. No. Um, okay, yeah, great. Uh, this is definitely what we have found. That Chris McCord <laughs> did a nice talk about Context, and this is in some earlier Phoenix days, maybe 1.2 or something like that, and how to use those contexts and what they were for and how you can architect your application using these. And I think everybody loved it, bought into it right away. Everyone started using contexts and those can pretty quickly spiral out of control. We're talking multi-thousand line uh, modules and that is definitely what happened to us. And so we, we really wanted to build them in the way that he talked about in which you're not building one context per schema or you know one database table. You're trying to build it around more business logic and grouping those things together. And, and that's what we tried to do. And that's what really made them grow really long. And so there's nothing just inherently wrong with a really big file. But what it just causes is it makes it really hard to find the functions that you're looking for. And so if you know, okay, I've got a function somewhere in which I fetch a list of these types of models, and then you're scanning a multi-thousand line file trying to find that, and uh, that's not too much fun. So you just end up writing it, and you might start duplicating things pretty quickly. So that mm. is the the biggest thing we ran into. So then what sort of heuristics do you use to decide when to either split a context, start a new one? Yeah, so we've just been trying to build more specific context. So again, we're we're trying to avoid the build them around a single schema or a single model. And so we're, we're trying that and that's, that's working out well. So now we've got some that are, are very small, just a couple of functions, but naming them properly really helps a lot. So yeah, going back to, are we good at naming or not? You find out pretty quickly when you start doing this, if they're discoverable, you have a new engineer start, are they able to find these when they need them? You know, does it make intuitive sense to go look up that code? Mm -hmm. And if you're not organizing around something in the database are you organizing around features or functions or like i guess how do you think about because at that point there's no 
boundaries, right? There's no like rules anymore. So, yeah, if you I'm, have like an example, like everyone uses like users or something, I don't know if you have an example of how you use context, that would actually be really interesting. Yeah, we do try to find some kind of logical grouping with them. So yeah, as you said, Sunday, the the kind of accounts is a pretty typical one where that might mean you have user records in there, but you might also have session records and you might have forgot password tokens and all those sorts of things in there. So you kind of group those under accounts and there is no great way to decide, okay, does this new schema also belong in that context or not? And so I think that's where then you just have to keep kind of asking this question, or at least this is the one I ask is, is this helping me find this code in the future? Is this where I'm going to think to look? And so that's definitely been my heuristic. So it's not so much just about file length, although if you start getting to a thousand, a couple thousand lines, it's probably worth asking yourself, are there better ways to do this? Because that's no easier to navigate than um, something poorly named. Is this where we talk about service-oriented architecture? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Okay. No, I, I remember in a few years ago, there was a big move in Ruby land toward like using service objects and this kind of thing. And I actually really liked that architecture style because it's just like one thing per class. And I don't really know why we don't do it. Anymore. I guess because we just got really good like model architecture. Anyway, but I could see this happening all over again in the Elixir world. Because and we actually just had a conversation with Chris Keithley uh, on his podcast about context, and his argument was basically that they're becoming like the APIs are not clear enough and useful enough. Yeah, it's a whole conversation, and it'll be ongoing. So I don't know if you want to add anything else to to help the audience make good decisions around code style and design choices around context. Yeah, I think. Keep experimenting, keep trying new things and see what works in your code base. I know we've gone through a lot where we write some context functions that just return queries, the actual, you know, ecto.query and not the actual results. And so we can share those a little bit more easily. Um, so we've tried a, a number of different approaches and, and some of those stick a lot better than others and some work really well. Um, so we try to get rid of the ones we don't like and uh, yeah, just keep those ones that seem to really resonate with people. Have you had any challenges with compile times as your application has grown? A little bit. Actually, I think it was Elixir 1.11 was supposed to speed up compile times. And I know that actually hurt ours a little bit. I think we have a, a few of those leaf nodes that just somehow are dependent on everything um, or just require to be compiled every single time anything within the application is going to be compiled. Yeah, for some reason with Elixir 111, that seemed to get a little bit worse. Um, but I know they're continuing to work on it. And there's a lot of documentation out there that can help you go out and actually find what is causing the slowdown. So we were able to, to speed ours back up quite a bit by doing things like in our specs, instead of using a, a struct in the spec, you can use kind of the .t style. So we've been using that uh, to get our specs to work. And then that relieves a dependency that used to enforce an extra compilation. So that's been helping us a lot. Yeah. And I'll just toss in, I believe mix xref is a, is a tool you can use to see what things are required to compile a file and that can help speed things up as well. Yeah. Doing that dependency tracing can definitely help. I've got a couple more here that I really... So first of all, I wanted to... All right, let's do the data science question, which is you guys have a, you got a data science team. You got Python running on Lambdas. 
NX just came out, Axon just came out, Livebook just came out. There's probably some other buzzwords I'm missing. Can you talk about, has this gotten to Corvus yet in any meaningful sense? Have people been playing with these tools? What What's the, what's your outlook there? Yeah, everything experimental so far. We do have some Elixir devs who are extremely excited about it, um, who, who love data science and want to help the team. And so we know that there's, more than likely going to be a place for it. At this moment, we don't have it yet, but we are definitely keeping a close eye on it and watching uh, because we're we're all excited about it. How do you work in new technologies into your like regular day to day when when Jose releases a new cool thing? How do you how do you work it in? Yeah, we like to get buy in from the the team as much as possible. So if somebody's about to introduce something, usually we ask them to to talk about the problem. What you know, what is the context? What's the reason for wanting to introduce this new thing? And so we we share that with the rest of the team. We write up documentation on it. We try to explain, here's where the problem is. Here's why this new thing is going to really help us and, and be great for the team. It's going to speed this up or it's going to make this way simpler. And that's usually all it takes. People buy in pretty quickly. If there's a good coherent argument there, everyone gives it the thumbs up and it's in pretty quickly. So yeah, we we love to focus on those problems. And not to say that we don't ever introduce anything or want to introduce anything, but we do hold a fairly high bar of making sure we really have a problem first before we start introducing things, just because that helps sell it to the rest of the team. If you introduce something without that, then no one's going to be quite sure how or when to use it. I want to ask some fun questions now, because in stalking you online, discovered that you've got some of the coolest like side projects or that of anyone that we've ever had on the show one was a card counting application do you want to talk about what that is and just the history the technology oh wow (laughs) yeah i hope you're okay with this podcast going a lot longer than uh, you were prepared for yeah i love the game of blackjack it is a, a casino game it's gambling game and it is special because it's, as they will say, it's the only game with a memory. So as you're playing the game, the odds change throughout the game. So it's it starts with a, a deck to multiple decks of cards, right? They deal it out to all the people sitting at the table and you're all playing against the dealer. And there are different odds depending on the cards that you have and what the dealer has. And so if you are able to, to track the cards that have come out, so in a very basic way, you're not remembering, oh, the King of Diamonds came out and then it was the Jack of Clubs. You're remembering just that high cards have come out and low cards have come out. And so this is how counting cards works. And when the count is in the right place, when it's a good count, that means your odds as a player are above the 50% threshold and they can get way up there. And so you want to bet a lot of money because your odds of winning are really high. And so uh, theoretically, you can actually make money doing this. And supposedly some people still do, but when card counting was invented, the casinos didn't know about it. So the odds were even better. And so a lot of people could actually make money doing it. So it all started with a a book by uh, Jim Thorpe was his name. He talked about some, they used some of the earliest computers. I think this, we're talking like early 1960s. He used that to devise a card counting strategy, which was pretty cool and is basically still in use today. So yeah, anyways, that's card counting. (laughs) So uh, I built an application to help you train as a card counter. So it just deals you games as quickly as possible. You keep track of the count, you learn how to bet and when not to bet. And yeah, ultimately try to make yourself a good card counter because 
it sounds very simple in practice. And then when you sit down at a live casino table and there's lights going off and drinks around and everything's happening, uh, it becomes much more challenging. So this was trying to make myself and anyone else who wanted to join a, a better card counter. I don't know. Should we even ask about this remote <laughs> meeting application you built? Because that's such a cool, that's such a cool, but yeah, you also, it looks like you maybe built a remote meeting app. That's like a side project or company. Yeah, more of a, a hardware device with a little okay. bit of a software component. So any nerves? Yes, using nerves. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, it was uh, yeah, very fun. So it's it's pretty simple in the end. But I work remotely, and until recently, most of our team was in an office. And when I went remote, it's hard to let people know that you've got something you want to say. There's just that little bit of latency on a remote call. And so by the time you start talking, somebody else in the room has already started talking. And so you quiet down and you wait for your turn again. And it can be really hard to, to say something when you need to say something. So I wanted some way in the room to notify people that, hey, I'd like to say something, but I want it to be not too invasive. I want them to just see it and know, okay, once we're done talking, we'll all turn and look at the TV so that uh, Eric can say what he wanted to say. So it's really just a light that sits in the conference room. Yeah, it is powered by nerves. There's a little Raspberry Pi in there. And so me at home, I click a button in the web application and it just turns on the light in the room. And so it just notifies them that, yeah, I've got something I want to say. So I built one and used it a little bit and then COVID hit. So uh, it's just been sitting on a desk somewhere and uh, hopefully we'll get to use it again in the not too distant future. Was that built only for for you, the one remote person on the team? Or if you had several remote people, like I know before COVID, Justice and Eric were the remote kind of people in the in the Smart Logic office. I don't know if you like, would they both have been able to to say we both want to say something? Yeah, they'd still turn on the same light, but yeah, definitely anybody could get on there and and trigger it. I guess gotcha. even if you were sitting in the meeting and you just wanted to tell people you had something, you could do that too. So it was just like somebody on the line wants to say something, not like Justice wants to say something or Eric wants to say something. Exactly. Gotcha. A lot you gotta of have it. You got to have it so people can pick colors when they sign in and then you can change <laughs> it to whichever color they picked. And then you, you know. I like it. Yeah. Free ideas here. Okay. When we go back to the office, I mean, the universal we, not smart logic, because we won't. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, we have so many fascinating people in the community and uh, uh, side projects definitely add to the, the complexity of a person. And, and yeah, when we found your website and these particular projects, we were like, whoa, I mean, we could do a whole episode just on. We were all on different pages. It's like when we do our research kind of phase, we, we usually are like looking at the same thing, but we were all on a different side project <laughs> trying to figure out what questions we wanted to ask you in the short amount of time that we had. Oh, cool. I am proud that I have actually completed a couple of side projects. I know that's a, a big deal. I don't usually complete them, but I was uh, happy to. Hey, thank you for joining us on Elixir Wizards. Before we close out the show, we'd like to share another quick mini feature interview with you. It's a brief segment where we showcase somebody from the community that's working at a company using Elixir in production, and we'll learn about how they're using Elixir. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to our new mini features segment of Elixir Wizards. My name is Alex Hausend, and today we're speaking with Stephanie Vietzi, a developer at SmartLogic. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. So I did a little digging. I noticed on your LinkedIn that you got your start 
in romance languages and you got a degree in romance languages. And I wanted to know how that led you into a career in programming and how you got started in programming. Yeah, I have been on many different paths, but I have always like been into languages and foreign relations and travel and stuff like that. So was doing that in college and was doing some nonprofit work after college and lived abroad for a while too. But there was a turning point when I really wanted to go into a vocation. And part of my nonprofit work that I did was a lot of operational stuff. And this was like a time when a lot of big software projects were coming out for nonprofits. And we were living in a space before that time. So we were literally working in the world of Excel spreadsheets. Right. (laughs) Data entry. So (laughs) it was like Excel spreadsheets to like house inventory, which is like crazy, you know, because you're just like a person can come in and touch this and change our inventory for. So um, yeah, exactly. And like basing our shipping off of that. And it was just, you know, a lot of like uh, make it work kind of stuff, but it was cool. And one of the things that it helped me understand, like as a precursor to wanting to go into tech and programming was that I could do um, like detailed operative functions and stuff. And I liked it. And I really liked it when it worked well together and it um, was seamless and stuff. And, you know, this was a time also when uh, it was real cool to use the Excel macros and stuff. So (laughs) that was definitely a part of our process. And I was like, you know, you had to fix it when it broke and things change, they need updates. So that was kind of like my headspace before being like, oh, this might be like a good vocation for me. That's awesome. There is definitely something to be said about people who are really good at Excel. I don't think I'm one of them, but it really is a whole other world. So I have to say props because I find it very confusing. Yeah, agree. I mean, this was, I'm going to date myself, but this was in like 09-ish. So, you know, this was before, I will just say that I never became a master, but I did learn from and was near masters, which was cool. I also worked with a woman who was like keyboard everything. And it was like my first intro into like never touching my mouse kind of stuff. So it was cool to be around those kinds of people in the environment. So do you feel like your, your kind of beginning in languages has been a career aid and moving into programming like the do you feel like those are kind of transferable learning a a spoken language to learning a programming one definitely i think that there are a lot of similarities and like it's no mistake they're called programming languages you know like you're ultimately trying to make a process happen or communicate a thing and there's different ways of doing that And so sometimes you're learning like between a language, let's say you take an idiom or something and you're like, oh, how do I say what's up, you know, in another language? And so like there's just ways of doing that. And sometimes what's up or an equivalent doesn't exist in that language, but instead they do something else, you know, like a hand gesture or whatever. So, yeah, definitely your intent and sort of like as a person who communicates in the world, like understanding what you're trying to put out there is part of it, but realizing that like the medium or the syntax or whatever might be different. 
Another thing that I've found to be true also is that when you're first starting out learning a language, especially as an adult, someone over 18, like it's so weird to be like, I can't speak my thoughts, you know? Yes. I can't be funny. I can't be myself. I can't say what I need, the you know? disconnect and, yeah. between your brain um, to what you want to say. So hard. Yeah. So I think that that's true. That translates also as a person who started programming also later in life too, where you're just like, just get thrown in, you know? And then you're like, yeah. oh, oh, like I barely understand the outline of what this is, but I am just gonna go in and throw some words out there and put some stuff on the screen and see what happens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Allows you to take risks, probably. So kind of coming off of your foray into programming, how did you find yourself working in Elixir? Actually, it was a while before I started working in Elixir for SmartLogic. I started here as a JavaScript developer and was doing front end for a long time, like maybe two, two plus years only. And so I got put on a project um, that was full stack Elixir Phoenix. And there was a more principled person on it. And I was sort of the apprentice-ish type person, the second yeah. And so it just kind of was like, got thrown in to a project um, that we were starting yeah. out for, as like a Greenfields project. So that was cool. And I think the very first thing I did, I remember is we were trying to come up with some, we had a, an example app that was set up and we were talking about like doing some accordion drop down stuff for an example. And I was like, all right, let me see if I can program this in Phoenix for tomorrow, you know? See if I can make an accordion in Phoenix, you know? And so I was like, okay, I kind of did it. That's cool. So yeah, and from there, it's just kind of like step-by-step making changes that we need. What do you think are some perks of the language? Perks of the language, it has enough things built into it that make it easier, but not so many things where you are sort of burdened by the need to write in a certain way. Right. More freeing. Yeah. There's, yeah. And and there's not like a lot of caveats and stuff that came along as the language progressed. That's like, oh, we need to think about that. We need to think about this and, and kind of like throwing things on the pile. And so if you just want to do something simple or you just want to do something one way that you have to put in all these arguments or put in all these extra things to be like, not this, but that, um, and overcorrectate things. Yeah. What are, what do you think are some challenges then? Challenges for me, honestly, is the JavaScript parts of Phoenix. Yeah. You know, yeah, just absolutely. seems like, just seems like it, shouldn't work that way, but it does. Um. (laughs) Do you find that there are some good resources for the challenges that you encounter in a a day-to-day basis working in Elixir? I mean, to be honest, one of the best things about working in the language for this company is that there are just so many resources here in terms of people that know and are comfortable with the language and excel at it, that I can really reach out to a person and be like, hey, this is what I'm working on. Like, what's the best way to go about this? And really have someone with that expertise to be like, I think that like the best approach, the best pattern, things I've seen 
is this and that's like really nice you spoke a bit to it but not to gloss over it what can you just give a quick elevator pitch to what smart logic does smart logic we build web and mobile custom apps we do a, a lot of soup to nuts start to finish projects which is nice and providing solutions for clients who need that custom element to make their digital dreams come true do you think that onboarding folks to a company that uses elixir has been more difficult what are the challenges that you have seen in that uh you know elixir is still a fairly new language and so probably still considered a bit more niche, right? A lot of people know JavaScript, a lot less people know Elixir. So how do you onboard folks? Yeah, like I said, had never really done backend before I started in this. So I don't have a lot to compare it to. I will say that really getting my head around the concepts and the way things work and the interoperability of everything for me was nice. And I think you know, not completely seamless, but was much smoother than I had anticipated. So that I think speaks really well to the language in general and our experience in working with it. I've heard a lot that Ruby developers, Rails developers are come to it very easily also. And so that's heartening as well. I think for other front end people who are coming into the language, much as my experience was, I think that it just makes a lot of sense. And it's really easy to see how things work together and, and make sort of the changes and the customizations and stuff that you need to. So, so yeah. far so good. Does every, does every project at SmartLogic use Elixir? No, not every. I will say that the majority, if not all of them that we start from scratch do have Elixir backends. And that's really what we aim for. Okay. Also, yeah, we do some things too. That's like uh, web and mobile. Maybe there's a companion app or, or a mobile app as well. And so they'll both run with an Elixir backend. That's cool. And before we run out of time, a rather fun question. If you weren't a software engineer, what would you be? Would it have something to do with languages and travel? Or would it be totally out of left field? Yeah, I mean... You know, I still love languages and travel and still I'm like very much in that world. But I, like I said, I, I really wanted to start on a vocation that wasn't language based. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is going to sound so dumb, but I was like this close to going to like signing up for helicopters, just pilot school. That would be so cool. Let's do it. Let's just do something fun. That would be awesome. Yeah. So uh, that that was kind of like my other option uh, that I was thinking about at the time. But, you know, how, I don't know how realistic and stuff that was. You need a lot of hours to be a pilot. And, you know, like basic, basically aerial photography now is null and void because of drones. So that was yeah. like a big chunk. And I wasn't. I didn't want to go into the military. So, um, but in any case, yeah. um, yeah, like uh, some vocation, right? Like some like learning a trade and tool. Yeah. Probably would have been another, some alternative out there. Well, there's still technically time. You can be a helicopter pilot for fun if you really That's want true. to. I told my mom when I was five years old, I wanted to be a school bus driver. So 
you know, I'm not doing that now, but I still think it might be fun to drive a school bus. Yeah. Get that license. You know what I mean? Like just be that volunteer bus driver. Yeah, exactly. Might be kind of fun. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, Steph, thank you so much for joining us today. And to all of our listeners, if you or your company are using Elixir in an interesting way and want to come on the show for a mini feature, we would love to have you. Reach out to us at podcast at smartlogic.io with your name, your company's name, and how you're using Elixir. Wow. This has been a tremendous episode, Eric. We want to be respectful of your time. and uh, But we also always like to give the guest the final word, which is, you know, if you have any final plugs or shameless self-promotion or asks for the audience, anything you want, the floor is yours. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Corvus Insurance, we are hiring Elixir developers. If you're interested, if any of that sounded interesting, uh, yeah, definitely applying. We'd love to have you. But otherwise, yeah, thank you so much. This was a ton of fun. Really enjoyed it.